0: where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show.
1: In which he could claim to be the rightful king of two realms. The task of turning this into a political reality, however, strained every fiber of his formidable being. His intervention in French politics had deepened the rift between the Burgundians and Armagnacs, since, to the latter, the war now appeared to be nothing less than a struggle for existence. Forces loyal to the Dauphin dug in, garrisoning castles wherever they could, determined to resist Henry at any cost. Conquest, it was clear, would be a slow and increasingly draining endeavour. From October, all through the winter of 1421 to 1422, Henry led an operation to besiege Meaux, a small town a few miles northeast of Paris. Meaux was heavily fortified, and its defenders put up a fierce resistance. The siege began late in the year, lasted for more than six months, and was a miserable experience for both sides. The garrison was slowly starved, while the besiegers outside suffered the horrible privations of winter warfare. It was a long and ugly way to fight a war, but if Henry was to force the whole of France to observe his rights under the Treaty of Troyes, he would have to break the most entrenched of the resistance to his rule. Toward the end of May, Catherine returned to France to visit her husband, leaving her baby son at home in England, under the care of his nurses. She spent a few weeks at his side, along with her parents. But it was clear to all as summer arrived that not all was well with the king. At some point, probably in the squalor of the siege of Meaux, Henry V had contracted dysentery. The bloody flux which brought the agonies of intestinal damage and severe dehydration to the sufferer was very often fatal, and Henry knew it. He was an experienced soldier, and would have seen many of his men suffering the same fate. Henry was cogent and pragmatic enough as the illness worsened to make a detailed will outlining his wishes for the political settlements in England and France after his death. He died in the royal castle at Vincennes, between two and three o'clock in the morning of August 31st, a little more than two weeks short of his thirty-sixth birthday. With the same bewildering swiftness that had characterised his life's every action, England's extraordinary warrior king was gone. At home, a baby not quite nine months old was set to inherit the crown, the youngest person ever to become king of England. If the new king was to live beyond infancy, and of this there was no guarantee, England would now face the longest royal minority in its history. Precedent wasn't promising. Three English kings since the Norman conquest had inherited the crown as children, and all had endured very difficult times. Henry III was nine years old when he became king in 1216, and in his early years he was dominated by overbearing ministers who used royal power to enrich themselves and their followers. Edward III had been thrust upon the throne at fourteen in 1327, after the forced abdication of his father Edward II, and for the three years power had been greedily and murderously wielded by his mother Isabella of France and her feckless lover Roger Mortimer, until they were deposed in a bloody palace coup. Richard II was the most recent king to have inherited the crown as a child in 1377, when he was ten years old. An attempt had been made to govern as if the boy king were a competent adult. It was a dismal failure. Within four years of his accession, England's government had almost been brought down by the Peasants' Revolt, the great popular rebellion of 1381, and Richard's subsequent path to adulthood was beset by political faction and upheaval he bore the psychological scars to his death. The Book of Ecclesiastes expressed perfectly England's experience of immature monarchs. Woe unto thee, O land, when thy king is a child! Matters grew even more complicated when, on October 21st, 1422, Charles VI died. He was fifty-three, And probably died from causes connected to his long-standing illness. The infant Henry of Windsor was now not merely the new King of England; he was also, under the terms of the Treaty of Troyes, the heir to the English Kingdom of France, a political entity that was still the subject of a furious war. The French king's body was laid to rest in the mausoleum at the Abbey Church in Saint Denis. His Queen Isabelle would continue to live in the Hôtel Saint-Paul in what was now effectively occupied Paris. Once a powerful, if controversial, force in guiding the realm during her husband's bouts of lunacy, her political days were now over. The English spread scurrilous and most likely false stories of her outrageous promiscuity, and claimed all too conveniently that the Dauphin wasn't really the son of Charles VI. As far as the conquerors from across the sea were concerned, the death of the Mad King left them in charge of France. At Charles VI's funeral, Henry V's eldest surviving brother, John, Duke of Bedford, had the sword of state carried before him, a gesture intended to demonstrate that he was now, as his nephew's representative, the effective power in the realm." Yet, for all the grandstanding and triumphalism, there was no getting away from the truth, which was, that the first king of the dual kingdom was a tiny helpless baby. An unprecedented and extremely delicate military situation would have to be managed for nearly two decades without a competent hand to guide the way. Only disaster, surely, could await. CHAPTER TWO We Were in Perfect Health Boy kings weren't unknown in the fifteenth century, but they presented a realm with many difficult questions. A king who was a baby, a toddler, even a young man, was perfectly able to reign, but he wasn't in any practical sense able to rule. At nine months old, Henry VI had been accepted unquestioningly as rightful and legitimate king. Yet until he came of age, or began to show enough discretion to start taking part in government, it would be necessary to make all the decisions of his public and private life on his behalf. As a child, the king was incapable of choosing his officials and servants, or giving direction in war and justice, and insufficiently competent to make critical decisions about succession on which the security of England rested. Yet these matters couldn't be ignored for eighteen years until the boy became a man. This problem had been anticipated, in part at least, by his father. As Henry V lay dying in August 1422, he had gathered his companions around him and given them instructions for the care of his son and his kingdom after his death codicils to his will established that responsibility for the young Henry VI's person would fall to his great-uncle, Thomas Beaufort, Duke of Exeter. The Duke was to have overall governance of the royal person, with responsibility for choosing his servants. In this, he was to be assisted by two men who had been conspicuously loyal to the old king, Sir Walter Hungerford a long-serving steward to the royal household, and Henry Lord Fitzhugh, a trusted chamberlain. One or the other was to attend the king at all times. They were later succeeded in their positions by two more soldiers who had been loyal to the old regime, John Lord Tiptoft and Louis de Robesart. But when it came to the practicalities of raising a tiny child, a mother knew best. Catherine de Valois, herself only recently out of childhood, played an equally important role in her son's early life and upbringing. Catherine's household was institutionally separate from her son's, but in practice they overlapped a great deal. The Dowager Queen's household finances supplemented those of her son, and Catherine was influential in his choice of servants. As a baby, Henry VI was attended chiefly by women— he had a head nurse called Joan Astley, a day nurse, Matilda Fosbrook, a chamberwoman, Agnes Jakeman, and a laundress, Margaret Brotherman. Little is known about any of the women, but it is impossible to imagine that Catherine had no say in their selection, for they would spend far more time with the boy than she did. When Henry was two years old, Catherine's former servant, Dame Alice Butler was appointed as Royal governess with an official license from the King's Council to chastise Henry from time to time without fear of reprisals, if and when he took offence at his necessary discipline, even when the king grew older and more men were added to his company, Catherine's hand was still visible in fourteen twenty eight Richard Beecham, Earl of Warwick, took over responsibility for Henry's education with a mandate to imbue him with the qualities of chivalrous knightly kingship. But Henry's confessor, George Artherton, and the head knight of his chamber, Sir Walter Beecham, had both been former servants in the Queen's household. The young dowager queen held extensive lands and properties throughout England and Wales, including the vast Welsh castles of Flint, Rhydlan, and Bulmaris the imposing fortress of Naysborough in Yorkshire, and farther south, Hartford Castle, Leeds Castle, and Pleshy in Kent, and Wallingford, an ancient royal castle that had been extensively repaired and fitted out for her comfort and benefit. She divided her time between her favourite residences, but for the most part she stayed near her son, in the magnificent royal palace of the Thames Valley, and particularly at Windsor, Westminster, and Eltham in Kent. Eltham, a favourite royal residence for more than a century, affords a glimpse of the young king's early life. It offered space, grandeur, luxury and comfort for Queen Catherine, and plenty of intriguing corners for a toddler to explore. It was surrounded with acres of parklands and landscaped gardens planted with vines, stone bridges arched elegantly across its moats and led to a network of outbuildings. The young king could stumble upon the cooks at work in the kitchen and buttery, the comforting scents of the morning's bread drifting up from the bakery, and the more exotic foreign flavours of the spicery. The palace had come into royal hands in 1305, and had been significantly redeveloped three times since the 1350s. In the early years of Henry's reign, yet more money was spent ensuring that it offered all the clean and modern facilities needed to raise a young king. Smart wooden apartments with stone chimneys were joined by cloisters to a grand private chapel. Catherine could entertain her guests at night in the hall, and a specially constructed dancing chamber, while the king's household kept to his rooms, centering on a private chamber warmed by two roaring fireplaces and lit by stained-glass windows, decorated with birds and grotesques, and the personal symbols of Henry's paternal grandfather, Henry IV. Royal badges and crowns surrounded the old king's motto, Souvenez-vous de moi, remember me. In this chamber, and others like it around the palaces of England, young Henry, Began his path to manhood and kingship, playing with toys and jewels given to him as gifts at New Year, taking his academic lessons from his tutor, the Oxbridge scholar and medical doctor, John Somerset, learning devotions by rote from his prayer book, laughing on feast days at court entertainers like Jack Travail, or the performing troupe called the Jews of Abingdon, learning to play the two musical organs he possessed and receiving early instruction in the martial arts, while wearing his specially built little coat-armours, and wielding a long sword. In private, Henry lived the life not of a king, but of a young prince, raised and taught and loved and entertained, and occasionally punished, much like other royal boys before him. Yet in the public sphere of kingship, things were far more complicated. England was a realm whose government spun like a wheel around the hub of the king's person. Institutionally, it was sophisticated, mature, and complex. The king was obliged by his coronation oath to consult his senior noblemen on matters of state, either through a formally composed council, or the more informal means of taking counsel or considered advice from the great men of the land as he saw fit. When taxes were required, he had to work in partnership with the realm via the gatherings of lords and commons that met when he called a parliament. Justice was dispensed by increasingly professional public servants, answerable ultimately to the court of chancery, and public finance was managed through another ancient and very bureaucratic institution, the Exchequer. But just because it was big and complicated, English royal government wasn't a machine that could operate of its own accord. Indeed, the machine's smooth operation, and by extension the fortunes of the realm at large, still depended fundamentally on the personal competence of the king. The magic ingredient that made royal government work was the absolute freedom of the royal will, and it was by exercising his royal will that the king could settle disputes between the great men of the realm, correct abuses and corruption in the system, and generally give a sense of leadership and direction to the country. Thus, a confident, decisive, persuasive, and soldierly king like Henry V was able to govern a united and peaceful realm. By contrast, a wavering, untrustworthy king, without luck or skill on the battlefield, and bereft of good judgment, Such as Richard II had been, could swiftly see his rule unravel and disorder tear apart the realm. Self-evidently, it was impossible for a child to fulfil this part of kingship, which marked the essential difference between reigning and ruling. Yet, from the very day that England learned of Henry V's death, there was an astonishingly sophisticated and united effort by virtually the entire English political community to operate the young king's power responsibly and carefully on his behalf. On his deathbed, Henry had given instructions that led to his eldest surviving brother, John, Duke of Bedford, taking responsibility for French affairs. This was uncontroversial. Bedford was the heir presumptive to the French crown. A sober, pious, hard-working man, a canny politician, and an effortlessly impressive lord, who projected princely magnificence in everything he did. More controversial were the measures Henry had proposed for government at home in England. One of the codicils to Henry's will suggested that his youngest brother, Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, would be appointed as tutela during Henry VI's minority. It may well have been that this term implied simply that Gloucester should have personal responsibility for the education and upbringing of the new king. However, it was also possible to interpret the term to suggest that Gloucester would wield full regency powers in England, accountable only to the king himself. Many in England would have approved of this interpretation, for in the country at large Gloucester was held in high esteem. He was a literate and cultured man, with knowledge and interest in every direction, from English, French, and Italian poetry, and the humanist learning of Italy to alchemy, which was then popular in educated circles. He employed foreign scholars as his secretaries, spent large sums on patronizing and promoting artists and writers, collected books, and fostered a learned, courtly atmosphere in his household. Moreover, he was a veteran of the Battle of Agincourt, and his beautiful wife Jacqueline of Anjou, whom he married in 1423, was a princess generally beloved by the people of England. He held implacably aggressive views on foreign policy, and, although these weren't shared by many of his fellow noblemen, Gloucester was seen in London as a champion of mercantile interests and someone who would stand up for native traders. Yet, for all these qualities and his undeniably popular standing among many Englishmen, Gloucester didn't command the devotion of everyone around the new king. Although he was a deep drinker of high culture, he could also be pompous and self-regarding. His military career had encouraged him to cultivate a personal reputation for chivalry, but he was decidedly the least impressive of his three elder brothers for while Henry V had been a peerless commander and a magnetic character, Thomas of Clarence a suicidally brave soldier, and John of Bedford a sober strategist, Gloucester tended to place mindless belligerence above all other tactical considerations. His desire for general acclaim alienated others who had a claim to power as well, and made him a curiously shallow leader. Meanwhile, His pretensions to chivalry would founder in 1428, when he callously cast aside Jacqueline of Henault, having their marriage annulled in order to take up with one of her ladies-in-waiting, a smart and seductive baron's daughter by the name of Eleanor Cobham. Like his older brother, Bedford, Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, cultivated a reputation for stateliness and grandeur. His simply rang hollower. It was perhaps no surprise, then, that when the conditions of Henry V's will became known, a concerted effort was made to prevent Gloucester from taking up the personally dominant position in government that he craved. This resistance was led by Bedford, in alliance with other lords of the Royal Council. In December 1422, during the first Parliament of the new reign,